Hello. I know you don't see my face, but I know you can hear me. Welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. Usually it's time for our current events stream, um, which we are going to talk a little bit about current events, but primarily the focus today uh, is going to be on Star Trek. That's why we made the joke that it was going to be a future event stream. Um, we will have Will Win on to discuss uh, the anti-imperial um, stance, I guess, that the writers took when they introduced the Prime Directive uh, during the invasion, the initial invasion of Vietnam, or the ramping up of the initial invasion of Vietnam, anyway. Um, and we're also going to be talking about uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, specifically the episode Bar Association, where Rom forms, forms a union against Quark. Um, we'll be talking about the Bell Riots on Deep Space Nine. And I'm sure that that's not going to be it, but that's what comes to mind right now. So, I guess to kick things off, I wanted to talk about Typhoon Chanthu, if I am saying that wrong, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, just to bring in uh, a little bit of the current events while we wait for Will to show up. He's trying to get the baby to bed. Um, typhoon Chanthu just became a category, well, it became a typhoon, I should say, uh, about 12 hours ago, and it's now a Category 4 storm. It could become a Category 5 storm by the time that it makes landfall in Taiwan and China. That's pretty significant. Um, well, pretty significant doesn't even begin to touch it, really. Um, also, I found out over the last couple of days that, um, wow, brain fart. Oh yeah, that the uh, Occupy movement may be seeing a, a rebirth. I don't know uh, all of the specifics yet, but I do know that the 10th anniversary of the Occupy movement is 10 days from now. I do know that over in Europe, uh, Extinction Rebellion is calling for a global general strike on that day um, for climate change. And I know that the Occupy movement is trying to encourage that as well, as well as uh, another general strike, uh, the 24th, and then a big one that could go on as for who knows how long, October 15th. Seems to be what I'm what I'm piecing together from Adbusters, Occupy Wall Street, Twitter. Um, but this isn't just the Occupy movement either. There's a whole shit ton of strikes. That are taking place right around the 17th. Um, and then October 15th has been called for as a, as a general strike by the March for Medicare for All and uh, a bunch of other affiliate organizations of that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where we're at. What do you guys think about the possibility of a general strike? Obviously, we need to beef up mutual aid organizations that already exist and create new ones to even think about a long-lasting one but uh, I don't know what are your what are your thoughts on the matter what do you 
what do you hope to see out of Occupy 2.0? Also, they're supposed to be uh, holding their first protest of Occupy 2.0 today. Um, I haven't gone so far as to try to find videos of that yet, but um, they were supposed to be op uh, occupying public, public property uh, in front of the New York Stock Exchange. So again, I'm just uh, wondering, you know, what you guys think about that. Feel free to message us in the comments. We'll display them on the screen. I see that Trisha is still having technical difficulties. How do you guys uh, over the air hear me? Um, well, I see Trisha's video. That's, that's an improvement. Anyway, um, there's been a whole lot of things going on uh, lately. Obviously, uh, Trisha's donning a new look. Emily says loud and clear. All right. Well, um, that being said, um, I'm going to look up. Oh, we got a comment. AO says, my best friend got her uh, last unemployment check today. It reminded me that we need massive solidarity. The strike is coming on the heels of this massive unemployment purge. And that unemployment purge is coming in the middle of what they are calling a labor shortage because they're not honest enough to call it a wage shortage. People are sick to death of working hours and hours and hours and having no time with their family to not even be able to afford rent and health care. Rent and food, let alone health care. Hang on just a second. Will just message me. He said that it says the event has already started. I told him that's fine. <laughs> that just means we're on the air. So he should be coming in here momentarily. He's saying I don't see a way to join. Trisha said her tablet just shut itself down. That's great. I'm sorry about this, you guys. You know how uh, technical difficulties are. Um, but, but the point is, though, that this unemployment purge is a reaction to the fact that nobody wants to work for these wages in these conditions anymore. 
That's ultimately what it comes down to. Um, this is not a labor shortage. This has never been a labor shortage. I am trying to figure out why this is giving Will a hard time. Um, I might have to restart this, you guys. I don't know how else to do this. Um... Yeah, it's not showing him a way to join. I don't know if that's an error or what. So I just heard the noise. Okay, it's Trisha. Hey, Trisha, we might have to restart this because it's not letting him join. I'm not seeing your video either. Oh, Trisha thinks that her tablet bricked. So that's not actually Trisha. That is a ghost. Um, I'm sorry, you guys. Hold on. You made it. <laughs> I'm I did. so happy. I thought I was going to have to restart this thing, and I was like, oh, no, we've already shared it all over. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Apologies for uh, being a little late. Fatherhood waits for no one, but uh, baby Liz on her way to dreamland, so that's good. That's good. That's good. Are you on the East Are you on the West Coast? I, see I am in Arizona. Uh, Trisha, if, uh, she's able to rejoin the event, I think her tablet just bricked. Um, mm. but if she's able to rejoin the event, then she is in Michigan. Um, I am in Arizona. <laughs> okay. Hence the, uh, sunlight behind me. Sunlight, right. Well, thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, man. Uh, thank you for coming on, honestly. Um, I've been following you on Twitter for a while and, um, Honestly, I'm kind of surprised that it wasn't already a thing being done. Uh, of just doing a stream, you mean? No, I mean... Uh, oh, my thing. Okay. Yeah, your thing. Your thing. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not a bigger thing. There's a lot of people on the left who acknowledge that, that Star Trek has a lot of leftist undertones to it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's surprising that people haven't tried to, you know, go to conventions, for example... Um, and try to reach out to those people. Um, right. I feel like you're organizing in a way that hasn't really been done. And that's awesome. 
Well, I think, um, well, first off, I think thanks for having me on uh, this, um, your show, the platform, the stream. Um, it's always a privilege, always an honor to be asked uh, to kind of just opine. So, uh, but also at the same time, try to organize real life too. Uh, and like you said, I think, yeah, I'm a little surprised too, but I think maybe not a little, not as surprised as some people in the sense that I think a lot of it had to do with the confluence of, of events. A confluence of factors in the sense that um, peop, um, people had to be open to more radical politics. Uh, I have always have held that experience is the greatest teacher, right? And the collective experiences will do more to open people towards revolutionary politics than whatever anyone can kind of say to you or what have you. Uh, so you needed, we needed to kind of go through these events to, for people to be open to these types of radical politics. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I think it's probably needed, uh, maybe just an accident or lucky design. Like uh, I also happen to be, you know, a huge Star Trek fan too. I saw cosplay too. Like you need to have someone that was also equally a huge Star Trek dork, equally huge Star Trek nerd, who's also an equally huge Marxist, equally huge communist, equally huge socialist. I view them as all the same because, in fact, socialism is a transition stage between capitalism and communism. But you also need someone that was open about, you know, wearing the hammer and sickle, defending it, not wearing it ironically, not wearing it uh, just to, to be edgy, but understand why, why is this symbol still uh, resonant? Why are the ideas of of the Communist Manifesto for Communism still resonant, right? Have actually someone kind of really believe in those types of things, explain it to people, but also kind of connect it to, to, to Star Trek too. So you need almost someone that kind of was equal parts both, and they couldn't fake being a Marxist, couldn't fake being a huge Star Trek nerd, had to be the both, right? Almost equal parts. And as corny as it sounds, like actually being a Marxist made me a better Star Trek fan and vice versa in the sense that I, I I learned to accept things in Star Trek because it's Star Trek because it's it's a it's a commercial property at the end of the day, but at the same time it's a commercial property that asks some interesting questions, uh, but it's not perfect. How can it be? It's very contradictory. Um, but you can kind of use your fandom to to explain certain things. And like I used to be the type of fan that used to obsess about canon and minutia. Now I'm just like not that big of a deal like you, you have fun with it right and i have fun with it by also being able to use it to explain to people like yeah how do we get to that star trek future um certainly not through capitalism how do we get there right so i think it was just events yeah yeah so speaking of events in the star trek universe um i'm sure you're familiar with the bell riots episode i I don't think that's what it was called, actually, but I'm sure you're past familiar. tense parts one and two. But yeah, I know. Ah, okay, yeah, um, yeah. That's I just rewatched that actually the other day. So when you messaged me today saying that that was a good place to start, I was just like, well, <laughs> good, <laughs> right? Um, but we're not far off from how they predicted 2024 looking. We don't have sanctuary zones because the United States is a sanctuary zone. So I think in a lot of ways, um, I don't know your familiarity with, with Star Trek, Star Trek Universe, what have you. Past Tense is always a great place for people to watch it. So it's a great episode of Star Trek, an episode of Deep Space Nine, my personal favorite TV show, uh, Star Trek show, though I love them all, really. Um, and 
yes, you're exactly right. It's one of those things that was written in like 1995 that was thought about like, ooh, it's going to be somewhat in the distant future, 2024. This is going to be so uh, far-fetched. And yet, n- not only is it far-fetched, it's actually, in a way, how it's portrayed, actually portrays a little bit of liberal naivete. Uh, and I love past tense. And I love that episode, uh, those two, that two-parter. But it also betrays a certain liberalism where, uh, spoiler alert, hopefully for people that are watching this, I'm going to spoil the episode. But basically at the end, right, the, the solution that Gabriel Bell, a.k.a. Cisco, has is we just need to let the world know uh, what's going on in the sanctuary districts. And once people know that it's really bad, then things will start to change, right? And that was like the whole thing. We just need to get our message out to the net. We'll get it out there. And once the things, things will change. And if only it was that easy, if only that's what it that's all it took for people to kind of find out how bad things are now of course fast forward to now 2021 we know that's not the truth we there are many people that are fully aware of what's going on they're not ignorant what's going on the people that want to change it and people that don't want to change it are people that just are too numb to it and nothing changes right so the, the question is not about knowing something's bad or not it's not about appealing to you know the oppressor's conscience which is kind of the other angle of the episode where we just got to call the governor and we got to tell the governor what's up and he'll and he'll he'll stop it right almost laughable and it's naivete right but at the same time i think it's still a useful episode in a lot of ways because the parallels are just so mind-numbingly obvious they're just staring you in its face if someone made this show now they're like wow that's too on the nose right but it just shows you like that in and of itself that this is something that would be the, the natural state of where capitalism will take you. And Star Trek will give you a good example of like, okay, we can get to that better future, but it never shows you how, right? It just kind of skates by to say like, well, we just got to, people got to figure it out and we'll just got to know more about bad things and we'll somehow, you know, talk our way out of it. Whereas for us, for me as a Marxist, I would explain to, to get to that Star Trek future of post-scarcity, it's not a question about appealing to, the, the oppressor it's a question about class dynamics the class struggle itself right that's how you get to to that starfleet future the star trek future um but that episode regardless uh, of its liberal intent it's still a useful art uh, uh setting to explain certain things to people yeah you know when i was re-watching it and, and to answer your question about my fi- familiar familiarity sorry who is star trek um i grew up watching it my dad grew up watching the original series. So naturally I grew up watching the next generation, mm-hmm. uh, you know? Um, and then I don't know, I kind of revisited as an adult. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't really grasp most of the, uh, underlying tones, most of the, the questions being asked or contradictions being pointed out. I didn't realize any of that when I was, you know, eight to 10 years old, but revisit revisiting it as an adult, that's when I noticed all of this. And I don't think that there's any anything that I haven't rewatched in the last five years because it probably took me about that long to make it through everything. But now I'm so excited about the amount of New Trek. And I mean, honestly, the content of, of New Trek. Um, I'm not going to say too much about Lower Decks because I know that you already have a lot to say about Lower Decks. But Discovery, uh, the, the last season finale... Um, which for those of you that haven't been following this, uh, discovery, they end up in the distant future and Starfleet is a shell of its former self, basically. 
And even in that weak moment, when they are approached and basically coerced into a peace treaty with a, an empire, basically, um, they were asking who was going to represent it. And if they were going to hold her accountable for her crimes and her exploitation. And if that's not anti-capitalist in nature, they, they even specified, uh, well, she specified, I should say, that capitalism was happening in the Federation because they haven't been able to make it to a star base in 87 years or 84 years or whatever it was. But the point is, is even in that situation, they were like, no, you've exploited too many people. You've committed too many crimes. No. And I think that speaks a lot uh, about the future that, well, now Eugene Roddenberry uh, wants to see. And I don't know. That's probably one of my favorite Trek moments. Say what you will about Discovery, but that shit was solid. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think um, uh, maybe I'll, I'll allow this opportunity for, for your host, your co-host, to kind of jump in if they want to. But uh, I, I noticed that we, I think, have your screen back. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm glad I, had to, <laughs> I had to rejoin from my phone because nothing else was wanting to cooperate. So I'm glad I can actually both hear and see you now. <laughs> it was yeah, iffy was, for a minute there. That's great. No, it's good. I was pretty concerned about it. Honestly, I was like, oh no, I have to do this whole thing by myself. <laughs> <laughs> nope, I'm here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I loved that moment too, because they were literally calling her out for her capitalist exploitation and going, no, until you are actually facing the consequences for your exploitation here and held responsible for the crimes you've committed in order to profiteer, we ain't going to fuck with you. And I loved that. Uh, it was a beautiful moment there. It was. And I think Discovery gets a bad rap in a lot of ways uh, because that's always so, that's also a time-honored Star Trek tradition is the new shows always just get uh, slammed until they're not slammed anymore. And uh, Star Trek, just like anything else, had to find its footing. Season three, arguably, was its best season yet. And yeah, had a very strong anti-capitalist message. Whether or not it was intentional or they wanted to, to, to make that, you know, seem pretty intentional to me. But regardless of where the larger arc of it is going to be, you know, it's still very rare that a mainstream property can, can kind of do that. And that's something that, you know, for me and, and I think others, right? Others that kind of find that radical message in it, explain to people like, yeah, why would he take, why would Admiral Vance take this stance? Um, and I think in a lot of ways, uh, the very setting of Star Trek, right? The, the, the quote-unquote Roddenberry box where it's a, it's a one-world government on Earth uh, where they've, they, they, Cisco calls it as a paradise on Earth. Um, you know, they've eliminated war, poverty, greed, hunger on Earth, right? You know, we know- Sounds that like a worker's paradise to me, I'm It just does, saying. right? It does, right? A one world government, no borders Indeed. for those things are achieved. And in fact, uh, one of the um, one of the requirements for Federation membership is actually a one world government. It's often forgotten about because we talk about warp drive being, you know, the, the barometer. But another key facet of membership to the Federation is achieving a planetary government. Do you think a planetary government is achievable under capitalism? Is that possible? Uh, as we've seen what's happening with the European Union and Brexit and the complete collapse of the capitalist order, right? They say it's the end of liberal democracy, but as a Marxist, we understand like this is a crisis of capitalism. Each of these capitalist ruling classes will will 
inevitably under crisis try to uh, export the crisis to one of its rivals, right? They might talk a good game, but then a day, you know, the American ruling class is trying to screw over the, the uh, Chinese ruling class are trying to screw over the European ruling class. All of these ruling classes are trying to balance against each other and they're all uncomfortable, right? They, and that's the, that's the crisis of capitalism. There isn't a way forward right now and they're not going to unite. And that's why all of a sudden everywhere, everywhere the world quote unquote seems to be falling apart, right? The, the old consensus seems to be falling apart. Everyone's turning inward, right? You know, what happened to NATO and the UN, and all these bodies, the EU, right? These bodies are responding to the crisis of capitalism and it does not have a response because it was designed uh, for a period of capitalist stability. We don't, we're not in a period of capitalist stability. We're in the exact opposite. So all these institutions, that's what's happening. And everyone's just like, oh, what the, we just want things to go back to normal. But it can't, right? It, it's it's not possible. There is no normal. The normal that those people are chasing has never existed. Yeah, I mean, exactly. at least not for the vast majority. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I think in a lot of ways, um, yeah. Out of out of quick uh, out of curiosity, uh, I, I see there's a chat. I don't know if I can respond to that chat. But it looks like uh, Aou China had mentioned started following you after. Post yeah, actually. I, I wanted to, to bring up a few comments from AO. Um, okay. This was before you came in. We were talking a, a little bit. This is usually our current event stream. So to fill the time while we were waiting, we were kind of talking about current events. Uh, mm -hmm. The end of unemployment being on Labor Day, if that's not a fucking slap in the face. But anyway, AO said my best friend got her last unemployment check today. It reminded me that we need massive solidarity. The strike is coming on the heels of this massive unemployment purge. And I, I just wanted to get your opinion on that, basically. I feel like it's a, a reaction to uh, what they are calling a labor shortage, what I call a wage shortage. Right. Uh, Correct. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I posted something online the other, literally yesterday about like uh, all the things that the, the U.S. government has done to get people back to work. Right. And it's, they do everything except actually pay workers more. It's, you know, we're going to call them heroes. We're going to clap for them. Uh, we're going to give them a fucking going, pizza party. You have a pizza party. We'll hire 16-year-olds. We'll hire elderly people. We'll hire 14-year-olds. Right? Right? 14, even younger, right? Exactly, right? They're going to do everything except actually pay them more, right? Because that's, that, that is a period of, cap, uh, of, of, of the crisis that we're in, right? The profits... Are, be, are, are being made on the backs of the workers through austerity, right? And we've been in this period since the 1970s, since the collapse of the post-war boom that allowed capitalism a rebound after the devastation of the Second World War. It, uh, the productive forces were reestablished. They were able to kind of capitalize on new markets. The U.S. ruling class was able to buy off a section of the working class until it couldn't anymore. So ever since the 1970s, you have what you hear all the time, like, oh, well, declining you know wages stagnant wages declining standards of living you can't afford you know uh to support a family on on one income right you can't have you know all those types of stuff that comes from material basis right the material basis no longer exists for reforms so we're in a period of counter reforms so everything that was won during that period is being clawed back and you know these things that you saw right now like the last unemployment check is another example of that through through a period of yet another unprecedented crisis, the pandemic, right? The capitalists were forced, like, fine, we'll give you 1400 bucks and just go fuck off, right? And they had to do it twice, right? To kind of stabilize the situation. Fine, we'll give you a little bit of extra unemployment, but that's it, right? But then the logic of capitalism, actually, it, it, it contradicted itself. It found out, like, oh, my God, 
now we're starting to pay the price of paying our workers nothing. They actually want, don't want to go uh, to work getting paid slave wages under unsafe conditions. So then you have a reverse condition where the workers are exercising their own agency of saying, I'm not going to go work for nothing and, and expose myself, these essential workers, right? Who got, who got blamed for just being quote unquote burger flippers, you just stock shelves. And yet those are the same jobs that literally kept the society going forward, right? During the pandemic, yeah. right? And the capitalists yeah. don't have an answer because each, they're components of capitalism that are working against each other. It's the, the idea of the anarchy of production. One set of capitalists are doing fine. Another set of capitalists are doing terrible and they're all, there's no planning to it. They're all just, they're just scrambling after this free market, just these short-term profits, right? And and then all of a sudden the, the pressure is, is, is put on the government to do the reverse, to take back these small crumbs because these crumbs are preventing people from actually being wage slave. They're preventing people from actually, you know, just being exploited, right? And in a way, that actually isn't um, a sign of strength from the ruling class. It's not a sign of strength from the capital. It's a sign of weakness. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind is that, yeah, things are bad right now. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to take anything away from the fact that things are bad. But there, but at the same time, because the situation is not going to get better under capitalism. The the audience for Marxist ideas, the audience for our class struggle, um, the ideas of a social revolution have never been wider, have never been better. Uh, and that's what gives me revolutionary optimism. It's not a sense of just always looking on the bright side, things will work itself out. It's actually understanding that there are underlying dynamics that are going to make people learn through mass experiences. Uh, and that will move people into struggle. And that's what gives you optimism because that's actually the motor force to actually achieve anything in society. All the stuff that we've actually gained in society has come through struggle, coming, coming from masses of people saying like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't work 20 hours a day. Maybe we should have like a weekend, all those types of stuff. And uh, you saw an inkling of that, just an inkling of that last year, 26 million people uh, in the United States, the belly of the beast came out to protest. Uh, the George Floyd murder, right? Many of them calling to abolish the police. All of a sudden, this yeah. radical demand doesn't seem so radical anymore, right? All of a sudden, when you have millions of people flooding the streets, right? All of a sudden, you got everyone kneeling all of a sudden. I got all the cops kneeling when they were crucifying Colin Kaepernick a few years ago for kneeling. Everyone's doing it, right? Um, you had 54% in a snap survey approve the burning down of the Minneapolis police precinct which at that time had more support than Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump. These are radical developments that are happening, right? And it shows you how yeah. unstable the situation is. And for us as Marxists, we understand like this is the this is the environment in which we can talk to people and organize. Uh, I, I just want to interject real quick to, yeah. to reiterate the fact that the two front one the two front runners who ended up being the two candidates in the primary process at that point in time. The burning down of the third precinct had a higher approval rating than either of them. It did. It did, right? And that and that shows you that opinions can change. That I, uh, it's not it's not static. That these things are in fact dynamic. And it also shows you how just short sighted the reformists are. The ones that are trying everything that they can to save this putrid system that's way past its expiration date. Uh, the, the people say, oh, you know, you can't go far enough. You're going to spook people. 
you know, you know, we can't ask for more than fifteen dollars now. That's too much. And these are the same people that couldn't have foreseen last year millions of people saying abolish the police that they were open that that they were open to supporting a very insurrectionary movement that happened in Minneapolis and spread around the world. Right? These are the same people that says, oh. This is not my country. I can't recognize it. You know, these are the same people that you say, slow down, right? We, we, you got to be incremental. And then these explosions of social consciousness will happen. And they're caught flat footed every single time because yeah. they can't comprehend. Like people would actually cap question the way things are. And that is what. Well, and, and the conservatives lost their shit when they found out that the organizers of the Black Lives Matter movement were Marxists. Like, yeah. No shit, they were Marxists. Yeah, I, every so every movement that's happened uh, poses a real threat when it poses when it has the ear of the masses and when the masses have a conduit to actually uh, revolutionary ideas, ideas that actually challenge the the actual status quo. The last time that happened before last summer. Was really 1968 in the 70s with the civil rights movement in the vietnam war it was a tremendously destabilizing period for the united states but also worldwide because the united states was actually losing its military they the the military was disobeying orders they were fragging aka killing its, its own officers right refusing to go and that these same elements that were deliberately disobeying orders were then going back home and linking up with the civil rights movement linking up and learning that in fact the strike the, the fight for against racism is a fight against militarism is a fight against imperialism it's a fight against all these types of stuff Malcolm X started coming to that conclusion Martin Luther King started coming to that conclusion and there's no coincidence why they were killed and that coin and tell pro was a thing right they needed to liberals love love to to put MLK on this nonviolent pedestal but like as soon as he started organizing against class issues that's when they killed him yeah i mean when he, he in, stopped taking such a passive they also love to ignore towards the end of his life that of when it came to him because he was challenging sometimes riots get shit a riot is the language of the unheard it is and um yep yeah, I mean, where uh, where King was killed was in Memphis, right? On a sanitation strike, right? He was he was there to, to speak on behalf of, of sanitation workers going on strike. Yep. And all of those types of things, right? It's exactly why there was a response from the ruling class to sabotage that movement, infiltrate it, jail them, kill them, and then also ultimately to wind down the war. They, they You know, we got to cut our losses, right? No more draft because the draft was a tremendously destabilizing factor, right? So they're like, get, let's get rid of it, right? So the ruling class was able to survive in a lot of ways. But that doesn't mean that there aren't lessons, inspirational lessons that we can pull from that to say, okay, um, you know, we saw last summer was just the beginning of the beginning, right? Um, imagine that energy. Imagine that energy uh, uh, channeled actually into where the working class has its most power, which is the workplaces. Imagine if uh the workers had been organized in advance so that they want to they want to support black lives against police murder and abolish the police then they actually would then mobilize to go on strike and up on a political level uh, as a general strike shut down the ports shut down the warehouses right. um, i agree 
all those types of stuff. That takes tremendous amount of work, years in advance to do. Um, but that's actually the way forward. And it's been the way forward throughout history, that it's that type of action. Uh, and you kind of have to do all that stuff in the meantime before the next. I, I forget exactly how it's worded, but uh, to, paraphy- to paraphrase Che Guevara, an apple is uh, a revolution is an apple, right? It's going to fall for uh, it's. Damn it! <laughs> it'll when it's ripe, it'll fall. Or it's not just going to fall of its own accord. Somebody has to shake the tree. I butchered that all the hell, but the point is that somebody's got to shake the goddamn tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I think um, we need to to actually make the working class realize that it's it can shake the tree. It it could totally play uh, not just a factor, the decisive, the, the decisive factor in these events, make the working class understand its true power. Um, and that's kind of what we try to do now. My organization, what I'm trying to do is kind of to be able to build an organization to transmit these ideas in advance and sink deep roots into wherever the workers are, student movement, workers movement, all types of movements to understand that the only way forward is the working class understand its true power to make conscious its unconscious strivings. You want to link up all of these struggles together. That doesn't mean that there aren't unique oppressions, racism, sexism, homophobia, what have you, right? But the, the underlying thing that underpins all of it is what, right? It's class society, right? The ability to oppress, deny people's livelihoods, kill people based off of these types of things. So how do you unite all of those things together, right? It's not to ignore that racism is very real. But like Malcolm X had said, you can't have capitalism without racism, right? It's used to divide the working class. So what's the best way to actually end all of this type of stuff is to, to find the common thing that unites all of us, right? And yeah, that's not a new idea. It's the workers of the world unite. It, it's amazing how it all actually comes back to that. Yeah. Um, so to get back to the comments, um, AO said, started following you I'm assuming you, after posts I saw on Nerdy Commies, that's why I assume it's you, on Facebook, yeah. uh, maybe that made the genre more relatable as I was never into it before. And that's the other That's the other part of it, too, right, is bringing people into the fandom. It is. I think, uh, I think a lot of what I happened with, you know, a lot of the, the stuff I did on Facebook posts and on Twitter, but, you know, a lot of it on Facebook, too, was... Um, was because uh, last year, because of the pandemic uh, and what have you, uh, you know, I couldn't do the same type of uh, political work that I did before. I couldn't actually be out there talking to people. I couldn't distribute my materials, that kind of stuff. A lot of us were, you know, in quarantine and lockdown. And what could what could we do, right? And in a way, kind of the, this idea of being able to, to to talk about Marxism, but also have fun with it too. And, you know, I also enjoy cosplay, as you can see, and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was a nice uh, melding of the two. It wasn't intentional, but it kind of worked out that way. And, uh, you know, kind of talking to people about these ideas. And like, it's, and like you mentioned before, it's not a new idea. I think I just happened to be the first that was, I don't know, somewhat vocal about it, like unapologetic about like my politics, but also my, my dorkiness, my fandom. Like, I don't really care about like, you know, what people think. So... I can just kind of post those types of stuff, right? And I think a lot of people initially like, is he is he joking? Is it some sort of a gag, a gimmick? Does he actually believe this? He's just a troll. And 
you know, and the other people were like, oh, all it is. I mean, to be fair, I feel like I was kind of in that group. I was like, is this real? Does he, is this real? (laughs) Right. And then people are like, well, he never interacts with anyone, right? So he must not know what he's talking about. He's just in it for himself. He's just trying to, you know, whatever, right? And people started reading into this kind of stuff. And I think for me, the reason why I didn't respond for the most part is I've done that before. Many people do those types of stuff. You you don't want to get sucked into these online arguments, right? Oh my you God. actually just use it as a conduit to, to be able to express your ideas, right? So if I'm in am in of itself a conduit, right? If I just, my very picture of me just wearing this somehow creates a, uh, some sort of discussion, then that's great because what happens is most people will message me. People that are interested will message me like, hey, what's your deal? And then I will link them to materials, resources, reading stuff, uh, reading groups online, discussions about these ideas, right? And then that's the end goal is to be able to have these conversations with people and actually talk to them about Marxism and also talk about Star Trek too. Um, and that's best done when you kind of reach out to me directly, right? And not necessarily getting into like a 200, 300 thread comment thread, right? Where nothing gets done. You just waste all your time, right? It was just a means, a conduit, right? To say Facebook or Twitter, if they're going to mine my data to sell me stuff, like what if I just use that as a conduit to actually use this to promote, you know, uh, socialism and communism, Marxism, right? In a very unassuming and fun way, right? But a lot of people read into that, so... I think it's funny when people say like, oh, what are you, are you actually for real? And like, if you talk to me, I, you can tell, I can, you can, you will know within two seconds how real. Oh I yeah. Am. You can't, you can't fake being a Marxist. Right. I've seen people try. <laughs> Speaking of the, uh, the rabbit holes of fucking comments, we've actually been pretty lucky on not having trolls until this past couple days, but damn, man, we spent, what was it? Probably like four hours arguing with a bunch of libertarians. Cause one of our posts got put in a libertarian group somewhere. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. It was... That's what happens sometimes. And it's a balance. You want to balance the online stuff. It's you use it as a tool, but at the end of the day, you want to build in real life to use it as a way to connect people in real life. That's yeah. what kind of gives me people the real energy to kind of put up with all the stuff that they see online, which is, you know, just online stuff. It's all, it's all curated. Right. So and designed to make you mad designed to kind of, you know, get you riled up. Yeah. Which I mean, that's part of the approach that we usually try to take. And I guess that's why we wasted so much time is we usually try to engage people like, Oh, well, why do you believe that? Well, libertarians get mad about that. <laughs> you pick and choose. You pick and choose where you can. Sometimes you can if if you, if you know what to say and it's targeted, and you know you you don't get sucked in. Then sometimes you do say something. You you link to something. You get something to think because the the corners um, the watchword out of all of this is you're not necessarily trying to convince the person you're talking to. It's everyone else reading it. Everyone else that's potentially going to read this exchange, they're the real audience, right? So you may yeah. ever, you may win that person. You probably won't win that person you're arguing with. But if someone's reading it and if you do put something down there, make sure it's something that someone reading like, hey, you know what? That guy makes a lot of sense. That person makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, and they know what they're talking about, right? And, and, and you put, you get more out of what you put in, right? Right. So if you put in something and you get a lot out of it, that then that's that's a meaningful online exchange. That, that's a good watchword to kind of keep that in mind. Yeah. AO's next comment. Uh, 
is uh, comfort breeds apathy for the petite bourgeois. Um, and yes, yes, absolutely. That was that was actually relevant to what we were talking about at the time when it was commented. But you know, that was like twenty minutes ago now. No, no worries. I think, ironically enough, on that comment, comfort breeds apathy for the petite bourgeois. Ironically enough, I would say now in this environment right now, the petty bourgeois are anything but comfortable. They're anything but comfortable. And I think that's something to be aware of is, you know, yeah. when there is a, uh, when people are open to radical politics, uh, there's a radicalization that happens both on the left and the right, right? So people are more open to socialism and Marxism. People are also open to reactionary ideas too, right? Because both of them are trying to respond to the crisis of the status quo, which is not getting anything done. Nothing's working. So then people are trying to seek an answer to resolve why is life, you know, terrible, right? So that's why for, for Marxists, we try to build a strong marxist socialist tendency to explain like the way forward is class solidarity all those types of stuff but and we need to be big enough to, to win over elements of yes the petty bourgeois too that can be that can be won over to our program but the petty bourgeois well, i mean in terms of the petty bourgeois remember that somebody's got to fund a revolution yeah i we mean we still live under a capitalist system i mean and and you know Engels was a fact son of a factory owner right you know as long as as long as you know your 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 allegiances and and your and your solidarity is actually with the working class the, the revolutionary class in society then that's fine right and in a lot of ways the petty bourgeois they're unsettled right now because of the pandemic and because of the crisis of capitalism these are the these are the the quote unquote mom and pop landlords right that have rental properties uh that they yep. use as an investment they're the they're the uh, nail salon owners they're the restaurant owners right small business owners right the people that necessarily don't have to sell their labor power directly but they can profit off another person's labor power right but the petty bourgeois yeah. is just your quote-unquote mom and pop version of them they're not like a, a big company right and under the right. crisis that's currently right now it's those people that are being ruined right that that are saying like oh man we got to evict people because i need to pay my mortgage right i need to all you all this type of stuff like they're the ones that are pushing for restaurants to reopen uh, because they need people to go in the restaurants to, you know, to, for them to be rich, right? For them to actually make money, right? So it's this crisis that actually has them incredibly alarmed because they thought that, hey, I can get by if I own a small business. I'm my own boss. I can figure it out, right? But they realize, like, wait a minute. It's this layer that's the first to, to feel the pressures, right, in addition to the working class. The big bourgeois, they can kind of weather it out. But it's that little layer, right? Those mom and pop petty bourgeois, they're the ones that hurt they're they're the ones that hurt the most, or they're the ones that can feel that pain. And they can be radicalized both left or right, right? And sometimes they become very open to reactionary politics. And Often. that doesn't mean we yeah, and doesn't mean we cater to them. We understand the power is actually in the working class. Most people aren't small business owners, right? We understand that. Right. But is there a way for us to win over those elements over time? Absolutely. And we should and we should try to do that because that's how you actually win. You win over elements from the ruling class as best you can. You want class traders. You want people that say, yeah, you're right. We, there, is, there is a better way. Uh, and I think that's a sign of the times too, is that they're incredibly unstable. Agreed. One place where I find there's an issue with that though is a lot of these small business owners are not to actually 
change how their business is operated and instead of exploiting people to you know change to a communistic platform there where anybody you hire is coming in part owner with a stake in your company and therefore getting an equal share of those profits just as much as you are because isn't any more valuable than any of the people who you're bringing on board who are necessary to run your business and a lot of these people absolutely do not want to do that because keeping the lion's share of the the value produced by other people's labor is fucking bread and butter yeah i mean that's that's the central contradiction too and you can't win uh all of them maybe not even most of them and i think the only way you can win some of them is from pressure from below, pressure from events. And, you know, that's why, again, we we don't uh, we don't base our politics based off of catering to the petty bourgeois. That's why we centered on the on the working class. But we understand that there there when events uh, mature and develop, there are elements that can break that can kind of can do that. But only from pressure from below when the movement is at a certain level where it can break off. Right. And you need to articulate a program that might make them to do that. But we don't lead with that necessarily. We don't cater to them specifically. Uh, but you're exactly right. I mean, it should be. These small businesses should be uh, owned uh, cooperatively. They should be under a, a planned economic basis. You should you should be able to elect and fire your bosses uh, based off of the That's the one the right state, there. Right? Uh, and then and on, on top of that, have uh you know the bosses not make more than the average wage of the worker not to create another layer another another class layer that, that puts itself above right and that goes to the heart right. of private property right to say i own this i could pass this wealth on to someone else right so that comes with time that comes with a change in significant material conditions uh and it comes from pressure from below right and i think uh you're right there are powerful incentives for the petty bourgeois to side with, with the bourgeois and you we are well aware of that and i think uh but in a lot of ways i think events can 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 have a surprising influence on people in terms of uh as you saw what happened last year right there there are contradictions that can emerge and just uh being aware that those can happen i think is is pretty critical one thing where um i think that push from below needs to be motivated. It needs to be us speaking to these working class people who work in restaurants, who work in these salons, etc. And right now they're all basically doing a very quiet general strike by refusing to go back to work for shit pay at a shit job where they're being treated like shit by those who are above them and tell them you need to negotiate your own position there you guys need to unionize and tell these motherfuckers that if they want their business to actually be able to continue to actually have a staff that the only way that you'll come on board is if it is with a stake in the company and it becoming a horizontal organization instead of the pyramidal exploitation that it currently is that right there is the power that is in the people because you can't have your business run without actual workforce without labor unless you're down to do all of it yourself and have a very very small business in comparison to what it could grow to that's a very fair point in terms of cooks i'm a cook right and across the country there is a shortage of cooks 
But about, what was it, six months ago or so, uh, there was a study that was published in mainstream papers talking about how the most vulnerable profession to COVID-19 death was line cooks. And that's because, you know, we're underpaid, we're in close quarters and terrible hot conditions most of the time. And uh, we don't have access to health care and we're underpaid. So, you know... Um, I have seen, at least in, in this area, in the, in the Phoenix Valley here, uh, wages have been steadily going up, um, which, I mean, I, I would argue it probably still doesn't match the way the rent's going up. But um, that being said, though, I, I think that, as you put it, the, uh, the petty bourgeois are feeling that pressure from below right now. Yeah, I think I think um, to Trisha's point and to your point, Rob. I think the 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 only way to to, to the best way to kind of to to to, to transmit this program is to have uh, uh, the workers organize on a mass level, right? So, what are the traditional workers organizations, right? Of course, a union, right? A trade union, right? But fundamentally, a trade union needs to be linked up to a larger organization, right? That'd be a workers party, a labor party uh, that can advance political demands across industries, across sectors, across individual, you know, business places, right? And that's kind of the important piece to kind of be where the current situation is that in the United States right now, the glaring omission in the political situation is the lack of a mass workers party. The Democrats are not a workers yeah. party. The Republicans are not a workers party. They're the party of the bosses, right? The workers have no ability to articulate its political demands, right? And it's the ability to articulate ma uh, these political demands on a mass level, which is the ability, which is how you begin to to actually make it possible to organize people and to actually make them realize what is actually possible, right? And to actually get them onto a fighting stature, right? So that's why I think. Uh, the the lack of a mass workers party, the need for a mass socialist workers party, is one of the key aspects that's missing out of all this type of stuff. And I think to to Ao's point in the chat, my biggest roadblock for organized workers is what they've learned at home. Uh, it's true, and it's also the fact that they're isolated too. It's incredibly easy for the ruling class to defeat uh, organizing movements that happen in one localized workplace. Look at what happened in Bessemer, Alabama with the Amazon warehouse, right? There was tremendous energy to do it. And it was still defeated, right? It was still defeated because in a lot of ways, Amazon was able to take all of its energies, all of its resources to, to defeat this, this, this election that happened at Bessemer, right? And, and a lot of it has to do with the failure of the labor leadership, the reformist labor leadership that said, we need to play things by the rules, play by the NLRB elections, that type of stuff. But imagine... If there was a political party, a workers party that articulated the demand across the board and just said, everyone that works should be in a union. Documented, undocumented, all industries, all sectors, white collar, blue collar, you know, IT workers, cooks, everyone deserves to be in a union immediately, right? Now we know that that is a very far reaching demand, but imagine if you had an actual political organization that made that demand across the board, right? We know that in, in, when there's a vacuum, something wants to fill that vacuum. We know that that there's tremendous support for um, for unionization, right? In the abstract, right? But 
what if there actually was that demand uh you know on a mass level right look what happened with sanders sanders is is no socialist he's a, he's an opportunist reformist of all stripes right but the fact that back in 2016 he he made the demand uh you know a political revolution against the billionaire class and all of a sudden you had millions of people that uh started going to his rallies right talking about fighting you know the one percent right there was this vacuum that emerged there people were going out to his rallies saying i don't you know I'm going to vote for him despite I, the fact that I hate the Democrats, right? I'm voting for him despite the fact that he has to work with the Democratic Party, right? Imagine yeah. our position at that time, my organizations, was why wouldn't Sanders call for the formation of a mass independent party? He had the ability to do that in 2016 and in 2020. Why Especially work in 2020. Yeah, why exactly? Why work within a capitalist party, right? A party that will literally stab you in the back and stab you in the front. And that's what happened, with, and that's what happened to Sanders in 2016 and 2020 and both times they made him well not made him he volunteered i will then you know stump for you after you stab me in, in in the front and in the back right it shows you the tremendous potential uh if you actually uh, articulate something that's independent of these two parties of the bosses that there'd be millions of people that would actually respond to that right but what happened right he kind of sheepdog people back in the democratic party and and, and you have the situation we have right now uh, but yeah. imagine, imagine uh, the possibilities if you kind of had that demand. And I think that's what gives people kind of cover. And, 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 and when I say cover, I don't mean like in a cowardly way. I mean, sometimes it's very dangerous to organize in your workplace, to talk about any subject because you're going to be fired, yeah. right? And that's very real, right? And, 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 and that's a very tangible thing. But when there are enough people that start talking about certain things, you feel like you're protected. There's, there's safety and strength in numbers, right? Look what happened last year, right? When there's a bunch of people protesting, millions of people, week after week after week after week, then you're like, wow, we actually do have a lot more power than we think. We can actually articulate some pretty radical right. demands because it looks like I'm not alone in this, right? That's the same right. thing that happens in organizing a union in your workplace. If you can kind of see that the same types of conversations are being nationalized on a generalized basis, everyone's talking about unionizing, so I'm not going to put my neck out there when just saying I'm unionized to get fired my boss, but like, if people are talking about it on a national level, uh, on, a, on a level where your coworkers are just talking about it because everyone's talking about it, right? It takes on a different element. People can be more open, right? But no one's going to put their, their neck out when no one's talking about unionization. Like, yeah, we should unionize and be fired immediately, right? But all of a sudden, if everyone talks about Black Lives Matters, then all of a sudden, companies have to talk about Black Lives Matters. Imagine if millions of people demanding to be in a union. Everyone starts talking about being in a union. That changes the element, right? But you need an organization, you need a party to articulate those demands for it to even be a thing, for people to, to, to actually be aware that, hey, we can ask for these things, we could demand these things, right? I think that's why it's so important to, to build an organization to, in advance, to be able to kind of give all of this some sort of structure, some sort of, uh, some sort of frame. Otherwise, it just dissipates, just like steam. Like, you know, without a steam engine, steam is nothing. But with a steam engine, steam becomes a force. It becomes locomotion, right? So that's that's the whole game, right? Is to build an actual uh, organization, an engine that can take all of this steam and push it forward. Otherwise, it will just evaporate no matter how much steam you get. And um, I think, oh, A said, have you considered running? Uh, I, no, not, not personally, but uh, my organization at some point I in other countries... Great. What was that? Sorry to interrupt. I just was saying you would be a great candidate. Oh, well, 
Well, thank, thank you. I think, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, I, I think my organization is Social Evolution. Uh, we were part of the International Marxist Tendency, and we're uh, we are um, in other countries and other countries where there is a workers' party, where there is a labor party, and we are strong enough to actually present a Marxist uh, per platform. Then we we do and have considered running candidates. Uh, it's along the lines of what I don't know if, if folks here read. I've read uh, Lenin's uh, left-wing communism and infantile disorder. It, it, I highly recommend it. It's one of the most misunderstood, but most critical pieces of work that was written. And basically it was Lenin in the 1920s after the, the Bolshevik revolution. He was, he was writing to the, the communist parties in many of these countries, like in England, in the UK, France, Italy, of saying like, what do we do now? We wanna spread the revolution. The Soviet Union was successful. How, what do we do? And he said, you need to participate in bourgeois elections, but how do you participate is is a is an entirely different manner, and it doesn't mean that you run for office to actually get get seats to win seats to to be in coalition to run a program to have the best policy. You run in order to advance your 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 platform to expose a capitalist system to build the forces of the revolutionary organization and the revolutionary party. It's to bring as many people to the banner revolution as possible, not to necessarily get into office and then keep your seat and then, you know, govern, right? I think that's a trap. A lot of what these, you know, DSA types, democratic socialists, that they actually do want to actually administer bourgeois government. And the answer is like, no, you can't. Uh, but you should use bourgeois elections, just like with anything else, as an element to raise the banner for everyone to say, you know what, why don't we raise, uh, why doesn't everyone be in a union, right? And uh, why don't we have the demands of, of a general strike? You want to uh, fight for black lives? You got to strike for black lives on a general strike, right? You want to stop deportations with ICE? You, right. you, you have a general strike, right? Uh, but the intention is not to actually win the White House or win the Senate or win the House to actually run a socialist Department of Homeland Security, a socialist you know, uh, FBI, right? The point is to use that office to to raise the banner to say this entire system is rot, and we're going to use this election to expose the system, right? It's a very precise way to do it. And it's misinterpreted uh, that book to say either you don't do elections at all, or you run elections in the most opportunistic way possible. And then you just become someone like an AOC where you just get elected and then that's all you do. You get elected, and you don't do anything, right? So right. It's, a very, it's a very focused, very balanced way kind of look at this stuff and you know it's hard it, if it was easy it would have been done already but it, you know it, it's what needs to be done so um that line honestly um sorry <laughs> just uh before oh, we go on to another <laughs> thought i just wanted to, through that lens honestly whether it was intended or not bernie did actually did help spark some of that because just the fact that he was bringing these things to a discussion on a national level inspired happening that has radicalized well, a lot of Well, let's be real. He wrote Occupy's coattails on that. Yeah. True. I mean, True. his whole, his whole narrative came from attention. us. Right. Yes. yes. He did. It truly did. But it, those conversations start happening amongst people who were either ignoring what was going on with Occupy or just unaware of what we were even doing. I mean, look at how many people who are like, what are out here protesting about? 
get the fuck out of here, you know? Um, so at least it started some of those conversations. It influenced a lot of people who were like, yeah, these ideas are great. We should actually socialize more things like fucking healthcare and education on a higher level through 12. Um, oh, yeah. So the influence was great, even though there failed to be follow-up when he fell back in line with everybody in the Democratic Party. Um, you know, it's utterly disappoint disappointing as someone who used to support Bernie and literally wanted him on that fucking ticket. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, a way uh, the way to explain, you know, Bernie, you know, what happened in 2016 and 2020 is uh, what I had mentioned earlier. Nature abhors a vacuum, right? So, uh, and it was a vacuum that was filled, either intentionally or unintentionally. I think Sanders, when he initially ran in 2015, didn't realize the echo that he would have, because at, at the time, I don't know if people remember, you know, Hillary Clinton basically cleared the field. No one wanted to challenge her in 2016. So basically, he was like, I'm just going to run. And all of a sudden, the, the the fact that he didn't really intend to win, uh, didn't have any you know, I don't know, illusions of winning, but all of a sudden his message started finding resonance. It was that instance where, as Rob had mentioned before, I think Trisha you brought up too, is that cumulatively, there were events that were happening before the disappointment of uh, Obama's two terms, what happened in two thousand eight with the economic crash, what happened with Occupy in twenty eleven, the first ten Ferguson, years, ten yep. days away. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, the first Black Lives Matters in Ferguson, uh, Eric Garner in New York City, all the stuff cumulatively start standing rock, all the stuff start building and building and building, right? And all of a sudden, it there was a vacuum that needed to be filled with some that someone that had an anti-establishment message, right? And he filled that role, right? He filled that role reciprocally. Not to say that the two are alike in any way, but Trump filled that on the other side. There was a reaction against. Republican status quo politics, Romney, McCain, the same types of people, right? They're, they were fed up with that too, right? So he came out as this anti-establishment candidate. Of course, he's not anti-establishment. He's like the most creature establishment possible, right? He's he's, he's, a, he's a total establishment person, right? But that shows you in the absence of a working class party and a working class movement, it can take on these distortions, right? So Sanders represented uh, a polarization to the left. Trump represented a radicalization to the right, right? And what happened is that it's a crisis of, of, of establishment politics, which is the Democrats and the Republicans are the two parties of capital. They, they, they take turns. They literally say, we got to govern safely for the country. They take turns, right? But the yeah. crisis of capitalism is making, is making it increasingly difficult to play the same game over and over and over again. And I think that's why they're feeling the heat too. That's why you're seeing a lot of record retirements you know, from mayors and governors and senators, because they can kind of see the writing on the wall. They see it, it, this is not worth it. This is not worth my time. I just want to get cashed out, right? You know, it shows you that's the crisis of capitalism is that the institutions themselves and what the actual ruling class will typically use in, in more stable times, they can't be used anymore, right? Uh, they want to use someone like an, an Obama. But Obama now would actually be, if he ran again, would actually probably face a lot of backlash for his reactionary politics at the time seemed pretty progressive but reactionary nonetheless right because you have a radicalization of the youth right the youth that marched in in george floyd protests last year 
are the, for the most part would oppose Obama, right? And you that's oh, yes. a huge that's a huge development that developed, right? It shows you people's people's politics are changing. Um, In terms of black like Black Lives Matter and Obama, the first Black Lives Matter protests happened under Obama. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he was the one, right? And and that's another thing too. I think a lot of people uh, are starting to see, and we and hopefully want to connect the dots, is that. You know, all of what happened in Minneapolis with 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 uh, with George Floyd happened under a Democratic mayor, Democratic city council, a police chief installed by a Democrat. Right. All the major cities. Right. New York City, Atlanta, Philly, Chicago, Los Angeles. They're deep blue cities. They're deep blue mayors, Democratic city councils, Democratic DAs and judges. And yet weird how cops still kill people in those so-called progressive havens. Weird how in San Francisco, the so-called progressive mecca of the country, homeless get literally just bulldozed over, right? They get, you know, tear gassed, right? They get they get ransacked. It's weird how police violence and the violence of the state is inflicted in these so-called democratic havens, right? And I think a lot of people have started to see that, but absent an actual working class party and a working class alternative, they can still sometimes go into like the lesser evilism. I'm just saying, oh, well, we got to choose between the lesser evils, right? Um, so it shows you if there was a th- if there was a third option that was actually rooted in the working class, not a vanity third party run, uh, but actually rooted with the strength of the organized labor movement, they would have an echo. There'd be millions of people that would be attracted to that message. Uh, there are more people that actually identify as neither Republican or or Democrat. They're more non-voters than either Democrats or Republicans in terms of voting populations, right? Those are the people that you actually need to actually talk about in terms of engaging, right? It's not about winning over this weird, like, swing voter that, you know, votes McCain one election, they'll vote, like, you know, uh, uh, for Harris in another election, right? Like, those don't really exist in the the numbers, right? It's all those other people. I mean, there's also the fact that, like, okay, so the, the millennials right now, over half of millennials have a favorable, 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 Jesus, I am having issues talking tonight, view of socialism. Yeah. Okay, like that's unprecedented compared to Gen X or especially to the boomers. Um, right. I, I mean, we're, we're seeing the, the groundwork that was laid back in the 60s finally come to fruition. You know, red diaper babies and all that. But... Uh, <laughs> The, the point is that almost everything that we're doing today is rooted in all of the things that were going on in the late 60s. Uh, 1968 was a year of uprising across the entire world. Yeah. Um, it was. And, the, and, and uh, what, what prevented 1968 from being a, a, a true breakthrough revolutionary movement is, is, the, is the lack of leadership of the working class. Like that is, you know, I'm... I'm a Leninist. I'm a Trotskyist. I do have a particular tendency, right? And and Leon Trotsky had this great line where he said, "The crisis of the world right now is a crisis of the leadership of the proletariat." Meaning, it's the leadership of the workers. Who are the leadership of the workers? It's actually the trade union bureaucracy. It's a labor movement. It's all of those all those people that are part of uh, the you know those amorphous NGOs you hear about all the time, right? Those NGOs we fight for workers' rights. You know all those types of stuff, and yet at the end of the day, what do they do? What have they actually achieved? Right? They all all they do is either they're really good vote getting operations for Democratic party uh, party politicians, 
They're great places for if you're a careerist to get a nice little comfortable, safe job fighting against the system, but you're a staffer and you, and you, and you send out emails to get people to call your senators. And that's what you do, right? It's a nice gig, right? Uh, and they, they're the ones that also tell you, don't go, don't go too far. Get, let us handle it. We'll figure it out for you. We'll get you this 15 cent raise in five years. Don't worry about it. That's the best you can do. They don't want you to go on strike, right? Don't go on strike, right? right? We'll get you the best possible deal. I don't know if you guys ever watched the, the show Superstore. It's not a Marxist show, but it's actually surprisingly radical. There's a whole part of them talking about unionization. And there's, great, there's this great scene where they talk about they actually get to the point where they can sit down with the bosses in the big corporate room. And there's a labor organizer that's there. And the labor organizer basically is exactly like a lawyer. She knows all the corporate people there, knows them by their names, and dresses the same and just says, you know what? I'll handle it, guys. Don't worry. I'll handle all the negotiations. And guess what? At the end of the episode, they're like, listen, the best we can do, 25 cents. 25 cents, and you maybe get a little bit of sick time. That was all you can do. That's, that's the best we can do, right? And then somehow she, she sli- the union organizer slices her hand, you know, cutting, you know, you know, cutting a bagel, the complimentary continental breakfast she got. So then the, the line workers, I had to then take her spot in organizing. And through their bumbling antics, somehow get a better deal out of it, right? Because they actually, they, they kind of ruffled and they riled the, the corporate people, right? Bottom line of the episode was basically saying they're the same, like, that's the same enemy at the end of the day, right? It's what Trotsky had said and Lenin said, they're the labor lieutenants of capitalism, right? Is that there are elements within the labor movement leadership that serve the boss, the interests of the bosses, right? They they got a nice they got a nice job. Don't rock the boat, man. They got a nice pension. Don't rock the boat, right? And that's the leadership that you actually have to to replace. Ah, Shit. We lost him. Am I back? There you are. Sorry about that. Welcome back, Will. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I don't know where I left off, but um, I think I was saying the, the crisis of the leadership of the working class. You need to yes. replace that leadership. Like a Richard Trumka, right? You know, he you know recently died and a lot of people were writing eulogies around him, but he was a classic collaborationist through and through, right? Wanted a, to work with the bosses, right? So many of those labor higher-ups, that's what they want to do. They actually are afraid of the rank and file going further than what is allowable. And they would lose their jobs. They would lose their sweet lobbyist jobs, their access to the White House and 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 you know their their speaking gigs, right? They don't, but that's the goal of, of Marxists is to actually build an organization, sink roots into the labor movement to say, you know what? If we radicalize the rank and file, the rank and file will demand more action. And if you don't get the action, we'll replace you. And that's exactly what they're afraid of. They don't want right. to go on strike. They don't they they just want to you know live their lives and 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 have the workers appreciate the 10 cents that they get you know every 10 years and and you're lucky to get it too right like that's the the end of business unionism and the return of class struggle unionism which is the beginning of real class struggle because that's when you involve millions of workers and that's when it takes on a different character and that's yeah. the only thing that's possible for social revolution is when you involve those layers of people it's not just individual communists here and there. It's when you can involve your mom, your neighbor, people that are never are never typically involved in politics. If they're the ones talking about, you know, going on strike, or they're the ones talking about, you know, how unfair things are, and they should take things into their own hands. 
that's when politics reaches a whole new level, a mass level. And that mass level is what you need to have in order to have an actual successful revolution is when you have enough people that want to change the, the class structure in society. Um, that's when you have a successful. And, and why shouldn't they? They actually run society. The, the, the vast majority of the world is the proletariat. They're the ones that actually have to, to work for a living, work for a paycheck. So why shouldn't they call the shots, right? So it's it's um, it, that's the kind of the, the key to unlocking all this type of stuff is that to actually have um, the, the power of organized labor, um, but on a militant class struggle basis. How do you get to that point? Uh, it takes a lot of work to kind of organize in the interim. And a lot of it has to do with kind of the political message that you have. Can we win over the rank and file social workers, truck drivers, bus drivers, all this type of stuff in advance so that when the time comes and there's openings, they realize, like, wait a minute, we actually can do something about this. We do something about withholding our labor, right? Uh, and, and doing something. But that's also a big, a big, uh, big ask too, because you know, you're putting people's livelihoods at threat too. So there's a lot of preparation that has to happen too. So it's not something we take flippantly or just like, hey, it's just gonna happen. We just gotta go on a general strike now. That's not what we're trying to say. But it's it's doing the work to build all that in advance. Um, and that's why it's hard because ideally you're supposed to do this around the world, right? You're supposed to do this in every single country. Uh, that's was the idea. Every single right? city, ideally. Every single city, every single country, right? And the idea of of Lenin's communist international, the common term before it was dissolved by Stalin was, was to build an organization in advance that would link up all these workers in advance. Um, so that's what we're trying to do now is why don't we link up the workers in the United States with Pakistan, Nigeria, and Mexico, UK, South Africa, everywhere, right? And, and unite them on a shared political program. That takes a lot of work, but it's actually the only way forward because capitalism is a global problem. It can't yeah. be addressed in one place. It has to yeah. be on a united basis. Yeah, totally agreed. Uh, so we've fallen a little behind on AO's comments. Sorry. Um, oh, it's good. It's good. I, I wasn't going to interrupt you, man. You were you were on it. <laughs> uh, but we were talking about we were talking about local elections, right? Like how the Democrats at the city level obviously still serve the powers that be, not the people. Um, India Walton is a socialist who defeated Byron Brown in the Buffalo Democratic primaries, and they're scared to death. Brown is suing the election committee and running a full throttle write-in campaign. He has mishandled uh, numerous shootings of black people over a decade. We out here. This was a mayoral race. Um, local politics are being co-opted by anti-maskers. I've seen that a lot here. Holy shit. Arizona's reactionary as hell. Uh, they can't escape our view. And then he asked, or she, I, I don't know, but uh, what happened to the hippies? Reaganomics? Yes, they sold out, pretty much. <laughs> um, as a Gen Xer who lost so many to the opiate uh, epidemic, I do have hope from millennials and Gen X. Thank you for your reminder that times of hardship are times to organize. It gets disheartening sometimes. And... Uh, yeah, it does. It does get really disheartening sometimes, especially if you're if you feel like you're alone. Yeah. If you live in a reactionary area and you feel like you're the only fucking one that feels that way, it gets really disheartening. It is. 
So, I mean, first off, I think uh, that's the benefit of, of the internet is sometimes it's the answer to, it can provide the, the source of that anxiety and that disillusionment, but also can provide you the source of, of solidarity and connection, just like we're doing right now. And it's just like a tool, just like anything else. You know, technology, social media, the fact that we can do this stream right now is amazing. It's, 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 it's an amazing human development of human labor and, and human productive force to develop technology to do this, right? But under the hands of capitalists, what is it? It's, it? It can be something that can be alienating. It's used to sell you stuff. It's used to take information from you. It's used to kind of do all this kind of stuff, right? Um, but the key point of it is that you're not alone. No one's really alone in these types of stuff. I think that's the thing that actually gives me a lot of uh, a revolutionary optimism. It, it, it sounds a little cliche and trite, but Marxism is powerful because it's true in the sense that when I explain to people, like, you know, isn't there more to life than just paying bills and dying? Right. Isn't there just more to life than just everything that we have to go through? Just the struggle day to day, living hand to mouth. Isn't there just more to life than that? Shouldn't we live just actually just live? Right. You know, and people kind of get deep down. People will get that. People will get even people that are like, you know, reactionary. Like, yeah, you know, I totally get that. Right. And that's what we're trying to get at after. And we've got to dig past so much crap to get there. Ideology you know, reactionary stuff, people's baggage and trauma and like disillusionment, you know, propaganda. They believe other things because they, they, that's how the ruling class stays in power. They convince people to, to go against their interests. But deep down, people know like, yeah, there's more to life than this, right? Uh, we don't have to live hand to mouth when, and we can provide for people uh, and make sure everyone doesn't die of starvation, thirst and exposure. We know that's true because, listen, do you know how much food is thrown away uh, at the end of the day? Just like if you're not radicalized, uh, just go behind an alleyway, a dumpster behind a grocery store or a deli or anything. And be like, you know how much food just thrown away, just thrown away. Right. And uh, it's actually they'll pour bleach on it or they'll call the cops on you. If you give that food to people. Right. So people know deep down, like, wait a minute, there's more than enough just to make sure people just don't starve and live. And survive. why can't we do that? Right. So it's getting to the point that I think most people understand that that's true, but you have to give them a way forward too, because people are also very rational. They think like, you know, there isn't a way forward. I just want to survive. I just want to live. I just want to don't bother me. Right. But the fact that they can't live, the fact that their inability just to live decent lives, that's what brings people into struggle, but they don't go into struggle indefinitely, right? They can't be in that constant agitated saying indefinitely. You have to give them a way forward to say, this is the way out. Right. And that's why you need to be organized in advance to kind of give them a framework to be like, this is how to analyze what's going on, right? And, you know, that, that, and, and that type of building an organization, doing that work in real life, although online is real life too, but that's what gives, you know, sometimes the energy to kind of, gives me energy sometimes to get up and just to do the same, like the same thing over and over again. It got me the energy to like get up today. I know I, know I was going to talk to you guys tonight, but it also helped me like, to get up, make coffee, do the same thing I just did, you know, last week again and again, right? And like, it's those moments of like, we want to enjoy life. We want to enjoy every ray of sunshine that we can, because we know we're going to need those types of things to kind of carry us through the darker days. And in fact, we should have even more free time. We should be working less. Like technology, and we're not Luddites, like technology is amazing. That's why I'm a Star Trek fan. We should be able to like... <laughs> 
you know, go and like reenact Shakespeare plays and, and, you know, do a musical and learn 10 different languages because we are freed up. We don't have to live hand to mouth anymore because we can develop a surplus of food and housing and clothing. That's the amazing thing about humans, right? But somehow along the way, like we have to like work to live, right? Like, oh, you gotta, you know, you gotta, or otherwise you starve, right? You gotta, you gotta earn a living, right? At some point that was learned. Like you have to like do this in order to survive. You know, and it's and it's super messed up because most people deep down know like that's who who decided we should live like this, like who the hell decided we should live like this, right? Like I have a daughter, she's eight months, and I think sometimes like wow, at some point in her life, if we don't win socialism in our lifetime, I hope we do, and we're fighting to do it. She's gonna develop a point where like I'm gonna also have to put her into like, you know, the same mentality I live in. They're just in terms of like, well, you gotta like you know get a job to like live and eat and whereas like right now she just lives she just lives because we take care of her she can enjoy life right but like it's that amazing thing that it's like that dr seuss book of like imagine the places you'll go right and it's true right it's amazing the things that we couldn't do but uh, things we could do but we're held back by wage labor and wage slavery but like why couldn't we do all sorts of stuff like that's what we mean when we talk about socialism and communism is the true unlocking of human potential like that's the the real tragic cost out of all this stuff is people talk and talk about like, you know, economics. Yes, that's important. But like how many artists, writers, sculptors, painters, dancers, uh, what have you, aren't those things because they have to pay the bills, right? And that's very real. You don't blame them, right? But how many people don't get the opportunity to do all the sorts of things they want to do, the creative endeavors that never happen because they just have to feed their family, right? Which is very real. You know, Carl Sagan. It's, has it's ironic that you bring this up as my background is a bunch of music equipment. I feel that. I feel that on a very personal level. Like, do you know how much I would love to just not go back to the kitchen and just fucking go play a show somewhere tonight? Absolutely. But under the current system, that's, I, I mean, realistically, like, it costs us money to play shows nine times out of ten. And, I mean, that's on venue owners, too, but that comes down to capitalism. Absolutely. And I think that is that is something that um, when we appeal to people, that was the initial appeal. Have you ever heard the term bread and roses? It's, it, we, we appeal to them. Yes, we will feed you. You don't have to go hungry. We have the bread, the means to feed you. But we will also give you roses. We will give you the ability to enjoy life, to live life. To, we only have one life to live. It needs to be a life worth living, right? Not just this, this, this insane rat race. That's completely again arbitrary and 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 artificial, right? So that's why I think about my daughters and I'm like, at some point that's gonna change, right? Like at some point she's like, she has to get a job to like pay the bills, right? That will change, right? And you're kind of like, why is that, right? When we can just provide for people, and of course that's private property. People are compelled to work, right? And uh, you know, Carl Sagan had a great line. I think someone asked him. He said, like, aren't you worried about? finding like the next Einstein, like the next Einstein. And, and he had a great line. He's all like, uh, I'm more worried about the fact that we, 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 we lose the equivalent of an Einstein or someone even greater than Einstein. We don't even know it. We don't even know it because they just died some senseless death. They just died and told at obscurity. Who, who could have, they could have been dwarfed. Einstein could have been dwarfed a thousand times over. We never knew about it. That's like the banality of it. And like, I read that and I think, AO asks, like, what's your definitive moment of radicalization? Like, like a moment like that kind of sticks with you. You're kind of like, yeah, that's true. There, there probably is 
so many, so much potential out there that you never know. That you never know because life just got in the way. And sometimes you couldn't even live a life, right? But life just got in the way, right? So like for, for me, like that's kind of gives you the, the fire to be like, yeah, we should just be living so much better lives. That doesn't mean we're nihilistic. Like, oh, life's not worth living. Like life's plenty worth living. There's plenty to find despite the misery. But like, man, what couldn't we do beyond that if we didn't have this? And I think AO said about the poor mom with three boys. Like, yeah, I mean, military recruiters are, uh, it's a huge class question. There's a reason why they, 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 they're, they're in poor neighborhoods. Uh, there is a reason why that happens, but also they're in they're in rural high schools. Rural too, high schools, that. Are, but that's but th that's actually also a kernel of radicalization too. Is that uh, there are huge class differentiations within the military that they, they don't want you to know about, right? There's a huge difference, which is by the way, I'm a huge fan of lower decks for this reason, right? Because there's a huge difference between officers and enlisted and rank and file right and i was uh, wondering how we were going to get to lower decks and i love that it was through this comment that's great and lower decks get to that right where where i don't know if you guys know about the show mariners like we do all the work they take all the credit right they get better replicator rations than we do they get the they come back from the dead <laughs> they come back from the dead they get macaroni with the breadcrumbs on top and we get nothing right it's like you know weird that they talk about this in a animated comedy from rick and morty but it, they're getting at some very radical conclusions meaning like man you're right the lower decks does do all the work how come they don't call the shots right same thing with the military is that actually uh my organization has had some success recruiting in the military and, and ma many military members are open to a message of class struggle and marxism we just have to be able to reach them uh and understand that you know that they're also being exploited on on, on some level on, on and that doesn't mean that they're not part of imperialism that doesn't mean that they're not part of a, of a terrible system but it's because of that system which is radicalizing them and we should be able to win over those layers if we can not to 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 tokenize them not to cater to them but to win them over it's like yeah you know you are being used stop being their lapdogs right and i think that's why a lot of them are actually tremendously open to radicalization politics. They have problems a lot of them are, yeah. Problem retaining, right? The military is is scared to death of what happened in Afghanistan, the debacle of US imperialism, because they're losing the confidence of people that said, wait, I lost a lot of people. I lost my friends. I lost my limbs. Fighting for what? Right? That's incredibly dangerous when you start losing those veterans that thought they were doing something else and all of a sudden they realize that's not true at all. And in fact they're just literally just thrown aside, cast aside. That's radicalization. We can win over those elements. Just like during the Vietnam War, those GIs came back. There is a huge movement that said, we won't die for another rich man's war. And those are GIs yeah. in uniform. That's incredibly radical. And by the way, that scares the shit out of the room. That's exactly what they don't want. Well, yeah, they look at how they cracked down on the anti-war movement. Yeah. That's exactly why. They were terrified. Right. And right. We they were literally to trying that. to criminalize people for coming home from war and being like, wait a minute, do you realize what the fuck we're being forced to do over there? And for yeah. what? For what? For what? Yeah. For whose gain? Because we didn't gain anything from that. And you don't have to, and the crazy thing, not crazy, but the thing that's amazing is that you don't have to be a Marxist per se to make that statement, right? But that right. gives us our opening to tie all those types of things. You're right. You're right. You're exactly right. You didn't, you went out there for nothing. Right. What mm -hmm. did you achieve? That gives you the opening, right? 
And um, that's actually in a lot of ways the, what happened last summer. I don't know if folks remember. There was some dissension at the higher levels of the Trump administration where Trump wanted to send in the National Guard and call in the Insurrection Act, which is a huge radical <laughs> move for him. It hasn't been activated since the Civil War, right? Insurrection Act basically said you can authorize the U.S. military to, out, to, to act on domestic grounds. The Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs at that time was incredibly opposed. You had, at that time, Defense Secretary Mark Esper openly breaking with Trump saying, you probably shouldn't do that. Now, that doesn't mean that the Pentagon or the Joint Chiefs were in any way part of the working class or had their interests at heart, but they no. knew the interests of the ruling class. They knew that if they did that, they actually had a fair shot of losing the military, meaning that the people that would be sent in to put down the Black Lives Matter protests, they weren't sure that they could actually rely on them to, to be able to put down those protesters. Because guess what? The same people that are part of those military come from working class neighborhoods. Right there, there many of them are of color themselves. Right there is a, a picture, a video that went viral. I think it was in D.C. Where at the height of the protest, they zoomed in on a National Guardsman. He was black, and they were hearing the protests of like, "Which side are you on? Which side are you on?" And you kind of see him just briefly, like looking back and forth, looking back and forth. He was crying a little bit, and it was a it was a picture where a picture says a thousand words. You knew what was happening in the picture. He was vacillating. Like if there was an order, like, "Hey, you know, to 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 shoot." Or whatever, would he do it? Would he do Probably it? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. And that's a situation that the ruling class, the generals, do not want to put in because they're like, we can't put that back together if they start breaking along the class. They join the other side of the barricades. And that's our mm -hmm. job to make sure they go on our side. We win them over, right? Turn those guns on the other side, right? That's that's our eventual goal, and that's what I would like to point out. Though, like, I don't, I don't know how much you watched from like live feeds in Minneapolis and and whatnot the days following George Floyd's murder, but um, I mean, when the National Guard was was called in there, like the police behaved themselves. I'm just saying, like we saw it. <laughs> it was like night and day. The night before the National Guard showed up, it was a war zone, and it. I mean, obviously the protesters were unarmed, so, yeah. but, uh, and, and I mean, we're, we've also seen a massive crackdown on press throughout the Black Lives Matter movement, and that's, all the conservatives talk about our, our freedom of the press or whatever, but the real, the reality is, of it, sorry, the reality of it is that there is no fucking freedom of the press. If we start really questioning the power systems, they're going to shut us down. Correct. Which or they're going to beat you or arrest you. Or both. Because you're standing at a protest with a camera broadcasting, showing people what's really going on. And see, look here, live police brutality. And next thing you know, the reporter's the one getting fucking hit. Yep. Which is why... By a cop. Uh, yeah, which is why it's also very important that the workers have their own press, right? They they need to have their own publications, their own media to analyze and explain to the other workers what's going on. You're not going to get it from CNN. You're not going to get it from MSNBC, Fox News, any of those types of stuff. We need to analyze and explain to each other and ourselves, this is what's going on. These are the class interests at play. Whose side are you really on, right? So, again, it goes back to the organization, an organization to actually have a press, put out the papers, put out the publication, analyze the events, because it's actually one of the most important things is to get those ideas 
into people's hands and in their in their in their heads. Uh, That's a big part of why we started this organization, actually, because there was nowhere that we found on Facebook where you could go and interact with people regularly and and get information. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. When I was when I was trying to radicalize, I didn't get anything from Facebook. There was I, I mean, I looked. I didn't find anything, really. I mean, now there's uh, other people doing the same thing, but we're limited by Facebook itself in that matter, um, which is why we're trying to, you know, like build a website where we can just host our videos on there. We will lose the live functionality whenever that happens, but uh, if Facebook censorship keeps on the way it has been, then it's probably not that far off. But that's exactly the reason that we started this podcast is because we need more voices on the left in general. I mean, of course, I consider myself a communist now, so like that's a large part of what I talk about now. Um, but coming into this, I was pretty new to the to the real left anyway. You know, like not not Bernie Sanders, but like. And that's yeah. okay. No one's born a revolutionary. And if someone right. said they were born revolutionary, I would be incredibly suspicious. You sound like a cop. You sound like an <laughs> you sound like an infiltrator. Right. <laughs> no one's born this this way. We have to learn these ideas, right? We have to learn through experience and then learn. Mm-hmm. Like, wait a minute. The thing that gives me a lot of hope too is actually is understanding the struggle that we're in right now in 2021, the United States, but also around the world is actually one unbroken thread of struggle, right? It's actually, we don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel. It is tied into the earlier struggles that go back, you know, decades, even longer than that, but it's all tied in, right? And that should give you some enthusiasm to say, hey, we can build upon that. And in fact, we can kind of, we have a lot of the work from the from our ancestors or, or, or our people that go before us, that we don't have to, more importantly, redo their mistakes. We need to learn what happened in the past, learn what worked, what didn't work, what we need to do, right? So that to make sure that we actually are successful this time, and we only have to win once. But it, it takes a lot to actually to do that to organize the world on a world basis. Like that sounds insane, but in fact, that's the only way forward is to actually organize. The world on a on a on a working class class basis worldwide. How do you even begin to do that? Well, there is a way to do that. You read theory because theory is not just books for books' sake. It's actually the generalized experience of the working class is what theory is. It's what can be generalized. What are the lessons that can be generalized and learned, and then applied in the future, and not applied robotically or mechanically, but just. In, in terms of the principles, how do you apply it to now? Right? How do you apply the lessons of prior revolutions to 2021? Because it is different, um, but there are still things that you can pull from, right? Um, and that's what gives me that confidence to understand, like, guess what? Revolutions have happened in the past before, and not just social revolutions, but to go from feudalism to capitalism required some revolutionary movements and some revolutions to succeed. And that happened, right? You know, for a long time, uh, there were kings and queens and peasants and serfs. You know, Game of Thrones shit, right? That was that was the way things were, right? Until it wasn't, right? Until who needs a king? Who needs a queen, right? We have freedom now, but that freedom was uh, incomplete freedom. It was a freedom, like yes, you're free, 
but now you're free to sell your labor power. Now you're free to be a wage slave. But you're you're not you're not a serf anymore. You're not a peasant anymore, right? It was development in human history, right? And in the same way, socialism is the next development. It's well past due. Like, yeah, we should not do this anymore. We should go up to the next level, right? So when you put it in those terms, it doesn't seem so far fetched. It doesn't seem like the end of history, which is what the capitalists want you to think. Like, this is it. This is the best we're gonna do, right? And clearly we know that's not true. And we know that things can change, but they're telling you nothing can change. It's right. impossible to think things can change. It's always gonna be this way. And you're kind of like, actually, no, it's changed a lot. Like, what are you talking that's about? That's a very ingrained thing for some people though. Like the, the ability to see past capitalism is not there. And I mean, I kind of get it because prior to actually like starting to look at some of the issues on their own, you know, race, class, gender, so on, uh, especially class. Um, I mean, most of my lived experience is class struggle. I mean, we didn't have money growing up. We were always wondering, you know, like, are we going to have enough to cover all the bills this month? And I mean, as an adult, it's not like, I mean, I'm doing better now than I ever have. And I'm still struggling. Like, yeah. And you share more in common with a worker anywhere else around the world than another quote unquote like white person here, right? But that's how racism particularly is used to divide the working class, right? To confuse people like, well, you know what? Like we're all in it together, right? You know, white people got to stick together. Asian people got to do black, you know, all this type of stuff. They're used to divide the working class and understand and to, 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 to avoid the basic question, like, wait a minute, we're all being exploited. Uh, right. But racism is still an incredibly powerful tool and the only way to fight against it is through maximum class unity and class struggle while understanding that racism plays particular roles in oppressing people but understand how do you fight back against that right and um i think that's what they're really afraid of is to realize like wait a minute, if the poor workers in this country realize that uh, they have share far more in common than every, every other worker in every other country and that they're not special because they're behind this artificial line, this artificial barrier, then that then the jig is up, right? But they do everything to make sure that doesn't happen. So you got the flag waving, you got yep. the chauvinism, you got the pledge of elite, everything is saying you're special, right? And here's the thing, that is not insurmountable. And it's not insurmountable because we have a lot of help. We have capitalism to help us. Capitalism is a tremendous recruiter. It's so good at, at building a mass audience for our ideas because guess what? People still have to survive under capitalism and man, is it a shit deal. People realize like, man, it's super shitty, right? So for us, like that is what gives us like, yeah, we have a, the audience is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's enough. It's just not enough to have an audience. If only it was that easy, that, that, right. that, that capitalism was just bad enough and then it'll just end itself. If, if that was the case, then we wouldn't have to do anything. If only it was that easy. But we do have to do something. We have to do active things to actually make sure it actually is ended. Um, but that's all that preparatory work, the organization needs to do. And um, But that doesn't mean that uh, that's a bad thing. That just means we got work to do and uh, we can work with others. And that gives you kind of the energy, the enthusiasm, to kind of get through your day, get through the week. You know, for me, you know, I'm staying up a little bit later than normally, but stuff like this kind of gives me the energy to kind of like plow through my other meaningless week of just like wage labor, right? Kind of like getting through those types of stuff. And 
you know, it's not easy. I'm human, just like everyone's human. We, we we have our ups and downs, but like that type of stuff is common to humans. We want to strive. We want to to be able to go further, and and unite along. Kind of a kind of a, uh, you know shared shared purpose. Right. right. I think a lot of this we can build on those groundworks already laid by MLK with the Poor People's Movement and by Fred Hampton with the Rainbow Coalition. These are the things that we legit need to bring to fruition. And I think a, a big part of that that might radicalize people is giving them that knowledge that this is literally why the alphabet killed those two the power that lies with people you know one massive front to fight capitalism racism sexism every fucking ism out there and actually take power because we out other fuckers who are exploiting us we outnumber them immensely it simply is going to take us coming together and part of that is knowledge and that that's a good lead into this uh, comment, actually. AO said, I have started to tackle Kropotkin. Fairly new to theory. Any thoughts on the ableism of requiring theory? And is it up to the able readers then to make theory consumable? That's part of what we do. We are yeah. uh, in, in coalition with our, our friend at Bread Theory, Zach. We're doing three theory streams a week. Uh, we are, well... Two right now, I guess, to be fair, Soul on Ice isn't really theory, but it's kind of uh, Eldridge Cleaver's backstory. We recently read Bobby Seale's story of the Black Panther Party, Seize the Time, uh, which that I would consider theory, but Soul on Ice, not so much. Um, but we are reading State and Revolution tomorrow at the same time, and we are reading Emma Goldman's Anarchism and other essays on Mondays. Right. So that, that is one big thing there, uh, that if you are having difficulty in those areas, if, if it is an ability issue when it comes to reading, listen, you know, because we're reading these things verbatim. I mean, yeah, we're throwing in our, our discussions on those things, too. And well, we, we like to break you know, things down when we can, too. Like, if, if we know there's a concept that, that we've struggled with or that somebody else might struggle with, you know, tell them what this means. Uh, right. Or, you know, like, sometimes we've literally, like, paused the recording and, like, I'll Google a fucking word. I mean, sometimes you just got to do that. Um, I think it's on all of us to make theory more consumable. Right. Especially considering that the average American reads at a like fourth grade level. Uh, that's no offense to anybody watching. I mean, that's just a statistical fact. Yeah, right. I think uh, um, this will have to be my, my final line because I just got the signal from my wife to be like, hey, going to wrap it up. Uh, she just came down the basement stairs, like, "Hey, you're gonna wrap it up." But um, uh, yes, I think t t this is the beginning of, you know, of people talking to each other, and that's the most important thing. Um, and and reading and understanding these types of things is important. Being able to explain it to others is important. Being able to write and analyze the events yeah. and explain to your coworkers and neighbors and those and, and your and and, and um, uh, what have you. Is important. Um, there is, yeah. Uh, um, 
I have I have a particular tendency. Uh, so there is a reason why I, I, I have a particular tendency. But I'm not going to get into that tonight. I think this is just kind of a more a general basis to kind of talk about those types of things. And there are differences between different tendencies. There's a reason why you organize a certain way. But at the same time, I think to the extent possible that people are open to anti-capitalism, socialism, communism, Marxism, terms that have historically just been just completely sullied and just people have been scared. They've just been scared because they've been taught it was literally the devil underneath the the their beds until they realize like the devil that they wake up to every single day is actually far worse, right? That for us gives us the energy. Uh, and I'll end with just what, what I said earlier is that I have revolutionary optimism not because I just believe in things will just get better because or that I always look on the bright side. Revolution optimism is we recognize the dynamics of capitalism, why it's operating, why it's failing. And then that means uh, there are going to be many more people that will learn through the experiences of capitalism's failures that will begin to move into struggle. And it's our job to be able to connect with as many of those people as possible. And we're, con and we're going to connect with them throughout all stages. Not everyone can, can commit to a live stream like this. Not everyone can commit to, to doing all these types of stuff. That's what we mean when we say we win that vanguard first. We win that, that dedicated cadre first. And then once there's a larger movement, other people will become more involved. Just like the movements that happened last year, right? Not everyone's going to be the same type of, of activist or revolutionary, nor should they be. But at a certain right. point, the movement will take on a different form. The masses will take on a different form. They will instinctively know how to defend themselves and defend their gains, right? That's how a strike will defend itself. That's what a picket line will defend itself, right? That's how in Minneapolis, right after the immediate aftermath of George Floyd, there were self-defense committees that were, that were put together by residents of that neighborhood because they realized the cops are not going to come to their aid. They need to defend themselves. They'll look after their neighbors. They'll make sure they're safe, right? They, they'll do that independent of any theory or knowledge. Imagine if they actually had that theory and knowledge combined with their right. natural instincts to look after each other. I mean, that's... That's what we talk about when they develop dual power, when they realize, yeah. like, wait a minute, we don't need them to teach us in their schools. We don't need them to, to take care of us in terms of medical condition. We can heal ourselves. We can teach ourselves. We can reduce uh, and feed ourselves. We can house each other far better. And that is when it, it, it takes on a new life. That's the dual power that, that truly happens in a true revolutionary movement when there are millions of people that that will organize in defense of itself it takes a lot to get to that point. Um, but that's kind of what's happened before. And that's what gives us hope because it's not like it's never happened before, which is right. It's actually successful worldwide this time. So. so I have one quick question for you before you go though. How yeah. surreal was it for you as a Trekkie to be featured on the front page of star Trek.com? Uh, it was, it was very, it was very surreal. I think, uh, it, I was surprised at how, uh, not edited my interview was. Cause it was, um, it was, um, Sean Kelly, who's just like a freelance writer. He's done other stuff too. And I think, uh, star trek.com it's a corporate product. We understand that. And we understand that star Trek kind of leans into like, Oh, we're kind of like woke liberal space adventurism. Right. So we kind of lean into that a little bit. So they were looking and they had, editors i think to their credit I, I don't mean that in a bad way to their credit they were they were looking for articles that tied in social justice that tied in you know feminism and racism to looking through star trek those types of stuff right and 
uh, enough people started asking me, like, why don't you just write about, you know, Marxism and Star Trek? And I'm like, they're not going to accept that. I mean, that's too radical for them, right? But then one person actually, I mentioned Sean, DM'd me and said, hey, I actually wrote some freelance stuff. They paid me some stuff. And I wrote about, like, BLM and um, Odo and the role of law enforcement. They, they seem like they're pretty open to this type of stuff. I want to interview you because of Star Trek communism. Like, would you be open? I said, well, you know, if, if you're willing to give it a shot, I mean, I don't know. And he interviewed me and, um, you know, and he said, um, uh, I'll submit it and, and we'll see what happens. And eventually I was surprised. Like they, 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 they posted it pretty openly. I think they just probably viewed it as kind of like a general human interest or like, here's this guy that just does this thing like this, this fun and, and from their perspective, they probably like, hey, this is free content for us. Like, that's great. But for me, I didn't really care about that. I said, hey, I can use this to talk to people and that kind of stuff. And it was it was surreal because I think I think it, it I think it made a lot of people mad. They're like, who? I thought this guy was a joke. I thought this guy was like, I know this was this was he's like a troll. Like he doesn't actually believe this stuff. And like, you know, I think. I think some people just couldn't understand uh, why I was doing this. And then you had other people saying, like, he's a hypocrite. Like, he calls himself a communist, but he wears clothes. He cosplays. You know, he, he exists oh in society. You know, like, how does that happen? So you get a lot of that. And for me, I'm like, you know, it doesn't matter that they're saying those types of things. The fact that people are talking about it and I can talk to people about Marxism and Star Trek, that's the goal, is that I can actually use this to talk about my organization. I can use it to talk about other stuff. So it was nice. So I think for me, it actually kind of gave life to my fandom because, like, you know, now I'm like, oh, I can go to a convention not just for Star Trek, but I can also talk to other people who are also, like, commies, but, like, now they're more open about it. Like, that's great. Like, uh, I'm, you know, I call myself the Star Trek communist, but, like, I have no, I have under no delusions. I'm the Star Trek communist. It's just kind of a, a tool to say, hey, there are many other people like other Star Trek communists out there. Let's talk about it. Like, it's fun. So that, that's why I'm looking forward to actually to go to hopefully pandemic will, willing uh, Mission Chicago next year because it's not just to go there for Star Trek, but now like knowing that there is an echo out there, like to meet other fans, that's great. And guess what? What if it happened to other fandoms? Is there a Star Wars communist out there? Is there a Babylon 5 communist, the Lord of the Rings communist, Dune communist? Why couldn't there be, right? Like fandom is a work of, of human labor and creativity. Like, why shouldn't we read things, a uh, radical revolutionary uh, view into these types of things? Like, it shouldn't be this thing. And it's like, so it was a little surreal just seeing the response. And then it was surreal to kind of get like YouTubers, like, you know, like angry at me and like do videos that are angry at me and saying like, this guy is a hypocrite, how dare he? But, you know, as long as they're talking about you, that means there's, there's, there's enthusiasm and there's a conduit to talk to other people about it. So by all means, continue to talk about this Star Trek communism, because guess what? I'm not the only one. That's the point. Like, and for me, it's just, you know, if this is a way for me to talk to people, like, let's do it. I mean, who says we can't have fun or actually talking about these types of things? And I think that's what gets people thinking is that this guy is actually serious. And he's also a huge dork too. Like, look at me. So, I mean, that's the thing. It's it's it's, it's, it's both, right? It's it's dialectical. So, what can I say? All right. Well, this has been awesome. Frankly, um, I thought that I I thought that we were going to have to be doing a whole lot more talking than we did, but you pretty much like the things that we were going to ask. You touched on anyway. 
Right. So, well, I mean, I appreciate you. You guys have me on. Um, I think what you guys are doing great. Well, let's be on again because, you know, we can talk about all of this stuff uh, because guess what? People want to talk about this type of stuff. They just don't know how to yet or don't are not confident enough yet. But, you know, once you get people going, like that's that says something. Why do you want to yeah. talk about these types of things? Because it's a universal experience. Uh, that's the true power of it. Uh, they just try to do everything to make you forget about it and say, like, there's no way out. You can't do anything. That's just the way life is, right? But, like, if you can talk about stuff, like, imagine once we be able to go to conventions and talk to other people in person, nerdy stuff like that. Like, you know there are other communists out in, like, all those fandoms, right? Because when you think about it, why do people gravitate towards sci-fi and fantasy worlds? A lot of it because they're, they're thinking of a better world. They, they want to escape this they want to escape this world and imagine a better world right like why can't we get to a better world and star trek for all of its liberalism and, and contradictions posits the fact that yeah in the future we uh don't have to just work to survive that you know you, they don't pay rent right. on the starship enterprise they don't uh, they don't check for your health insurance premiums they just give you a hypo spray uh they just uh, you can just live and you know that is in and of itself a very radical, um, a very radical scenario. It's a very radical proposition, and then people are like, "How do we get there?" And that's where we come in. Like, there's a way to get there. It's not just a TV show. It's not going to be exactly like Star Trek, but like, why can't we just have what they have? Seems seems to work. Seems right. to, you know, why can't we get there? So that's that's the kind of the, the secret sauce when you can talk to people about. Uh, your interests and your interests are both nerdy and, you know, revolutionary too. So, so yeah. Great. Um, and I have to go, but thank you. It's everyone. one thing that they made. Sorry, go ahead. Before you go one more thing, that was one thing they made very adamantly clear in first contact, you know, when they go back time and Picard is talking to, um, I can't remember her name, the, the woman scientist who was Lily Sloan. helping Lily. Thank you. Um, Lily. and tells her, tells her flat out like we don't have an economy we don't if we don't have money in the future the pursuit of wealth no longer exists it's no longer because yeah, we are exactly. bettering each other and bettering life for all and literally lays out like these things that are happening right now is what leads to that because it takes the unity of the world that happens with this first contact with another alien civilization for people to actually unite in a way that they've never seen before but a big part of that was the collapse of their system world war three the whole nine yards of like these things are the groundwork of actually getting there because they had to actually watch capitalism die first right uh and that's so, kind of where yeah, we're at now so Picard, Picard sounds like quite the communist when he says that, right? It's, amazing, it's in my Twitter bio, right? Like, the acquisition of wealth is no longer driving forward to humanity. We seek to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. Some communist in space is my bio, is my Twitter bio, because it's true. He sounds like a communist, right? Amazing how that is. Uh, one, one truly last thing before I do have to go, and I think, I'll, I'll say this, though. I think some people do say that oftentimes. Like, well, to get to the Star Trek future, you had to go through a World War III. 
You had to go through like the post-atomic horror. You had to go through all these terrible things. Therefore, is that what you're saying? We have to go through World War Three could be the global revolution. I'm just saying. Right. And I and I would say actually, and I would say no. I would say personally speaking, no. In fact, we want we want to avoid that. And in fact, it's eminently avoidable because the power of the working class right now. The world proletariat, the, the people that count themselves as members of the working class, is the greatest ever been in human history. Actually, has tremendous power already. It doesn't have to de- go through the process of destroying the productive forces to do that. And in fact, that's no guarantee that the destruction of the productive forces will lead to a revolution. It could lead to reaction, right? It could lead to another thing. That's why World War One was it was a great slaughter that uh, that Lenin railed against. And same thing World War Two. World War Two was a direct cause of the working class not being able to take power in germany in hungary in italy it was the failure of the revolution to expand out from the bolshevik revolution which led to the rise of fascism it was the it was the failure of the german revolution twice that allowed fascism to rise right so in a way it was the failures of the revolutions of the working class to take power which allowed the complete slaughter that and the carnage that was world war ii to happen and in a lot of ways now the world is organized in a way where World War III, because of nuclear weapons, it's incredibly unprofitable for capitalists to destroy the world because not they won't be a world left to profit from. But that actually means there's tremendous opportunity for the workers to be able to actually win and take power without having that cataclysm. And we shouldn't have right. to go through that cataclysm. Um, well, the workers no, have all the power all. Like, already. Right. The the world part isn't necessary. It's the seeing capitalism itself crumble and people struggling to actually survive in that capitalist society. I mean, it it was it was looking like a Mad Max type society that they went back in time to. And all it took was the people coming together and uniting and going, you know what, we need to, to make life better for all. That actually led them through that door. Yeah, it was beautiful. Anyway, I know that you gotta go. So yeah, um, yeah, don't get in trouble, man. <laughs> no, no, no. I appreciate you right. uh, taking the time. Thank you for having me on. It was great. I know that we can talk uh, for 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 many more hours. And love to chat yeah. to it again. And the, the audience chat was great. Uh, and thank you for doing this. So I really appreciate everyone. So uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank yeah. us. It was awesome meeting you. Likewise. And I would have you back anytime, as often as you're willing to. These absolutely. conversations <laughs> absolutely need to continue. And this has been awesome. Thank you. That's right. Thank you, everyone. Good night. You too. Good night. Can I do it with my left hand? Think <laughs> let's right. see. Let's, right, let's move the camera out where you can see. There we go. Giggity. Excellent. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. <laughs> um, that was beautiful. So I, awesome. I see that David, I agree. Uh, I'm going to catch up with the comments, but it's about time for us to wrap it up, too. Uh, David and Ao are talking about uh, conquest of bread and mutual aid. Bread theory um, has an entire conquest of bread series where it's broken down into individual pieces and he discusses it just like we do. Um, right. So Zach is also, we have a, uh, we have a repost of that on for we are many.org. Um, just 
you know, a, there should be a search button somewhere. Search for con uh, Conquest of Bread. Uh, mutual Aid is on our to-do list. It's sitting right in front of me every time I'm sitting here. Um, yeah, so far then, we have done The Little Red Book. Um, not the whole thing. We're going to come back to that and do it as well, its own thing. We will circle Eventually. back, yeah, because we were pulling excerpts from that um, that, you know, we felt were of the most importance and tying those into how to apply them to today's society and politics. Um, and that, that, that was beautiful. Honestly, that's one of the things Yeah, I mean, honestly, the book club is probably like the epitome of what we're trying to do here. Um, so, I I actually really like what Aya was saying here. If I I find if I read and take notes as to how the idea pertains to us now, it sticks with me more. If I had a car and was on the road, audiobooks would be my go-to. But, I mean, listen to the audiobooks and jot, jot down ideas of, of how it ties into today. Um, but, no, that's a really good idea, and I like that. You're cutting out really bad. Ah, shit. I was afraid of that. Um, it's knowing how it is. China knows how it is. Billionaires do not run the economy. The people do. Fucking exactly. The people run the economy. China knows that. That's why I consider China socialist. Right. Um, but yeah, anyway. The family, uh, <laughs> the family soup TV said new phone. Who's this? Um, if you're still watching, dude, hell yeah. Um, I've watched a lot of your streams from Minneapolis. And Natalie said, thank you. Earlier, Natalie also, said the discussion and breakdown is very up? helpful. Yeah. yeah, I saw that. Um, yeah, Family Soup, this is Zen. We've spoken a bit on Facebook. Um, I love and sharing it. <laughs> so thank you for messaging me on live. It's beautiful. Indeed. Um, for that matter, if you ever, if you ever want on the left. Exactly. And if you want to come on yeah. sometime to discuss what you've seen and what you're about, by all means, hit us up. Um, that being said, though, I bid you all a good night, but I we're over two hours now. I think we're good. Do you, um, yeah. do you have anything you want to say, I guess? I don't, other than see you tomorrow for I, I State and Revolution. I, I can't think of anything more to add right now. Like, this is a great conversation. I'm glad we got to have it with Will. Um, he's a fabulous guy. I'm digging this. I hope he comes back yeah, soon. Yeah, and I'm, I'm super pumped to have him back, honestly. Oh, like. Right. I almost felt out of place at a, at a couple points because, like, 
fuck, dude, the way that he was able to relay what he was thinking all the time. And, like, we didn't even have to ask him questions. He just went. (laughs) And that was great. And hit on so many things there that we were going to ask him about anyways. That was beautiful. And I love the way that he was able to put things in context of how shit is happening today. That's literally what Marx was talking about, what he was describing in the capital. And critiquing, you know, the, the, the issues with capitalism, how to move into socialism and further into communism in order to actually, you know, have the, the conditions of the race. And evade those ideas without ever mentioning any of those terms. That's one of the things that we need to be learning how to do when it comes to having these conversations with people who might be, you know, literally seeing flags dropped on the field if they hear the name Marx or any terms associated with communism, because in order to actually get them to hear thought process, you got to kind of get them to understand the ideology the critique of society that was happening there first before going oh hey by the way that was marxist you know yeah. um it it's beautiful it's utterly beautiful to to be able to communicate that with people and it's an absolute necessity when we're trying to discuss these things with a lot of people who grew up with, with red scare bullshit and mm-hmm. don't know how to take those things unless it's put into context in a different manner. I love Will's communication. Yeah, you can't use you can't use the scary words. Right. It actually um, laid the groundwork for what those scary words actually mean and have them nodding their head in agreement. Like, yeah, that. And it's like, dude, that's fucking Mark's <laughs> you know? Then burst yeah, their bubble. Yeah, for sure. You know? Anywho. An awesome night. Anywho. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, sure for has. joining us. Um, be sure to join us tomorrow. We'll be reading some Lenin. Um, and the next day will be another episode on Eldridge Cleaver's book, um, Soul on Ice. That's part of our Black Panther series. We've also got more coming up for Emma Goldman's Anarchism and other essays. Be sure to tune in. Check those things out. We're here Monday through Thursday, most weeks, sometimes even on Friday, too. Yeah. Uh, We'll also have some, like, written pieces coming on the website uh, over the weekend to kind of fill the gap and hopefully catch you guys up because I know we put out a lot and it's hard to keep up with. It's hard to keep up with recording it. I know. (laughs) But uh, yeah. Anyway, until next time, solidarity. Live long and prosper.